0: The early 1880s were a strange time in Ireland. The country was rocked by several notorious killings, the Mam Trashner murders of 1882 being the most prominent among them. Two years later Ireland was again shocked by another murder in East Cork which is the focus of this podcast. This is the second part of A Land to Die For which looks at that murder. The first instalment set the scene introducing William Sheehan, a native of Ann outside Castletown Roach in Cork, who grew up in an Ireland obsessed with land. Now if you haven't heard that show it's really worth checking that out first. In this podcast I pick up William Sheehan's story in the aftermath of a bitter dispute following his eviction from his family farm. He and his wife Marianne had emigrated to New Zealand but his neighbours Are about to uncover his dark secret, which would lead to a sensational trial. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is Murder Will Out A Land to Die for, Part 2. I will say again, it is worth listening to the last episode, Part 1 of this case first. The story will make a lot more sense if you do it that way. Now, we find ourselves in pretty strange and difficult days. Due to the Covid-19 crisis, unfortunately I have had to cancel the 10th anniversary of the show. But we'll have a proper party when we get through this. I've always really appreciated the understanding that you, the listeners, and particularly the patrons of the show, have shown me when I was sick. So now I'm hoping that I might be able to repay some of this if you find yourself in social isolation or just struggling with what we're facing. In this vein, all patrons can now get my two audiobooks for free. One is somewhat topical and looks at the Black Death in Ireland. The other is on the life of Brian Boru. That's about 7 hours of audio there. If you haven't heard them or you would like to hear them again, there's details on Patreon about how you can get them. Now in addition to that, patrons will also have access to a new weekly podcast that I'll do for the next couple of months. Starting this week, I'll be releasing my first book that's on life in medieval Ireland, which is Spies and Stockholm Syndrome, chapter by chapter, There's 22 chapters that will bring us on a journey into our medieval past with stories from everyday life in an unimaginably different world. Further to this I'm also going to do all I can to keep the regular content on the main show coming out on a weekly basis and I will release the odd chapter from that book on medieval Ireland on the main feed as well. Hopefully together we can create great content that provides something of a distraction in times where we might find ourselves having to spend increasing amounts of time isolated from our friends. Finally, I have appreciated all the correspondence of late from all over the world and staying in touch is a really important part of getting through this. And while podcasting is something of a one-way communication channel, if you know someone who's in isolation or just struggling and would appreciate a shout out on the show, get in touch with me now at info at irishhistorypodcast.ie that's info at irishhistorypodcast.ie and we'll give them a shout out on the show. Above all, I think it's important to remember we will get through these difficult times. Now, to A Land To Die For Part 2 And we start in Cork in the 1880s William and Marianne Sheehan had left carrick in Cork in November 1883 closing a chapter of their lives They said goodbye to the only home either of them had ever known only a few weeks after their sixth wedding anniversary but it had been obvious to all for some time that that anniversary would most likely be the last they ever celebrated in Ireland. The couple had been evicted from their farm a year earlier and things had gone downhill since. After the eviction William had waged a long, protracted and violent but ultimately fruitless campaign against the caretaker of his farm, Joanna Power, who had been appointed by the landlord. After this the Sheens had tried to find another farm, but that too had fallen through and the couple had no option but to look for a life elsewhere and they decided to try their luck in New Zealand. They could draw a line under what had been a few very difficult years and William could leave his dark, dark secret behind him. In the following months they reached New Zealand safely and started building a new life. William found work and the couple began to think about buying a farm. However, Back home, life in Carrigdan remained the struggle it had always been. While the worst of the recession and threatened famine of the early eighteen eighties that had been the start of the Sheen's problems had passed, eighteen eighty four brought new difficulties, a severe drought saw water supplies for animals dry up. Oddly, however, while William may have been twenty thousand miles away, this drought would prove his undoing. As water sources across Cork ran dry, a farmer in Carrigdonan, David Broderick, investigated an old well that had been disused for decades. It had been used as a rubbish dump for years but beneath the debris Broderick was hoping he would find water. The difficult work of cleaning out the well wasn't easy and it began on August 30th 1884 when a workman, William Fitzgerald, was lowered down the shaft to start removing what was years of rubbish. Fitzgerald was not long in the well before he found a human skull and a collection of small bones. Initially he wasn't perturbed, he may have been under the misapprehension that these were decades old. However it wasn't long before he found a thigh bone which still had some flesh and it became obvious that this was a case for the police. Over the following two days more macabre discoveries were found in the well. In total three full human skeletons were recovered. Alongside these were numerous items of clothing, boots tweed trousers, a shawl, a belt, a black dress and also another pair of lace boots were found. Despite the fact scientific analysis was in its infancy it was immediately obvious. These were murder victims and recent ones at that. However unlikely it was that three people could fall into a well at the same time, an accidental cause of death could be definitively ruled out by the presence of lime. This white powder was used to accelerate the process of decay and dull down odours. Whoever had dumped the bodies in the well had covered them in lime hoping this would hide evidence of their crime. While an inquest would be carried out already some people in Carrigdenan knew who the remains belonged to. As they examined the clothes they recognised the red shawl, the black dress, the two pairs of boots and their eyes passed slowly to the ruin of what had once been the Sheehan farm. It was clear these bodies were a result of the bitter dispute that had taken place over that farm. While initial reactions may have thought of Joanna Power, who William Sheehan had intimidated, threatened and even attacked over his eviction, an inquest quickly ruled this out. Where Joanna Power was in 1884 is unclear, but in any case the remains were in the well years and furthermore a doctor identified them as those of an older woman, a younger adult male and an adult female. This did not fit the profile of Joanna and her family. She had young children. The inquest identified who the murder victims were and the police immediately began an investigation. While a local man, John Dwan, was arrested the police knew their hunt would inevitably take them to New Zealand and William Sheehan. When the story broke in Cork in the early days of September, William Sheehan was in ignorant bliss 20,000 miles away in New Zealand. However this would not last long. The story reached the far side of the world with remarkable speed. Since the 1870s a telegraph cable connected Australia to the rest of the world and in 1876 a cable between New Zealand and Australia was laid. Within three weeks word had arrived in New Zealand of what was happening in Ireland. However as we saw in the last episode on the first day the story was printed in newspapers it contained confused details. The initial stories claimed the case was actually about events in a town in Lancashire, England. The name of the perpetrator, however, was correct when they said it was William Sheehan. Now while William Sheehan's friends in New Zealand, unaware of his past, assumed it was just another person of the same name, Sheehan himself knew his past was about to catch up with him. Indeed, within 24 hours reports were already correctly identifying him as the person wanted for what was a truly shocking crime. On the 30th of September, 1884, the New Zealand hurled. Carried the full details of what the police in Ireland had uncovered. Under a headline of Terrible Tragedy in Ireland, the article stated It is reported that a constable will be dispatched to New Zealand for the purpose of arresting William Sheehan, who is suspected of murdering his mother, sister, and brother in Castletown Roach. The murder on the family farm had not taken place in 1883 during the land war. It was not the actions of a desperate tenant against an all powerful landlord or the person helping the landlord namely in the case of the Sheehan farm, Joanna Power. Instead, motivated by greed and ultimately a desire for land, William Sheehan stood accused of murdering his 60-year-old mother, Catherine, his 23-year-old sister, Hannah, and his 28-year-old brother, Thomas. Now as the story broke in New Zealand, William remained at large, but he didn't attempt to escape the police now on their way from Europe. In any case, escape may not have been easy, as it initially appeared. While the colonial authorities in New Zealand had not arrested him, They had in fact tracked him down and were fully aware of where William was. Then on December 17th they made their move. William was brought into custody and questioned. Initially he claimed he was totally oblivious to the fact that his name had even been mentioned in newspapers. Yet at the same time he stated he had not killed his mother even before her name was raised. After this arrest William Sheehan was brought before a court in Auckland, New Zealand and remanded for a week. This began a drawn out process whereby he was regularly brought back before judges only to be repeatedly held on remand. The authorities had to wait for police officials to arrive from Ireland before they could move the case forward. However there was no question where this was all heading, to Ireland where William would go on trial for his life. In March 1885 events began to move rapidly when William met the first familiar but unwelcome face from home since he and Mary Ann had emigrated over a year previously. This took the form of William Dunney who had been the local constable in Carrigdonan who had tried to prosecute Sheen nearly two years previously for his attack on Joanna Power when she had been installed as caretaker on his family's farm after his eviction. Now a sergeant, Dunney had been dispatched from Cork to New Zealand In the absence of a photograph of Sheehan, Dunny would be able to formally identify him and he secured what was effectively an extradition order for William to be shipped back to Ireland. In mid-April the long journey home began. Dunny and Sheehan boarded the steamer, the Ruapehu, in the port of Wellington, destined for Plymouth, England. William's journey back to Europe took a very different route than the one he had come out to New Zealand on. On his way from Europe he had travelled around Africa and across the Indian Ocean but in mid-April 1885 the Ruapehu struck a course due east, taking the vessel out into the vast expanses of the Pacific Ocean. They rounded Cape Horn off the coast of South America reaching the Brazilian city of Rio de Janeiro on May 4th. Ten days later it had reached a coaling station at St. Vincent's in the Caribbean. From there they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, reaching Plymouth, in what was, until then, the fastest recorded journey from New Zealand to England, taking a total of just 36 days. By May 25th, William Sheehan found himself back in his native Cork. He had circumnavigated the globe, although this was little achievement given the circumstances. Indeed, within hours of his arrival he was brought before a court, where he was sent forward for a full trial at the summer assizes in Cork.
1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash History. Today To get 10% off your first month That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish history Since her husband had been arrested Mary Ann Sheehan's life had been thrown into absolute turmoil It had led to major tensions between the couple And she had not travelled back to Ireland with William This was understandable She had had nothing to do with William's crime And she had married him completely ignorant of what he had done However, on her arrival back to Ireland, she increasingly found herself at the eye of a growing storm around her husband's upcoming trial. As William's spouse, the law protected her from being compelled to testify for or against him, meaning she would not be involved in the court case. However, this was little consolation. It was already clear she was going to be centre stage. The prosecution were going to argue that her marriage and specifically her dowry were William's primary motive for murdering his family. His trial had been eagerly anticipated in Ireland. Since the discovery of the bodies, newspapers had hypothesised about the case and the motives for the murder. Now the truth would finally emerge. The drama of the trial, or rather trials, certainly did not disappoint. In the end it would take three separate hearings before a jury could reach a verdict. The first trial held in the summer of 1885 collapsed after a newspaper printed prejudicial comments and it was felt that it would be impossible to find a non-biased jury in such circumstances. The case was postponed until the winter assizes in December that year. This time the jury heard the full case against William Sheehan and it was gripping, compelling but unnerving in so many ways. The prosecution argued he had brutally murdered his brother, mother and sister in October 1877 in a complex dispute over the transfer of the family farm from one generation to the next, namely from William's mother to William himself. They were able to provide a strong motive. As we saw in the last episode, land and indeed violent land disputes were nothing new in Ireland, although the prosecution were able to argue that William's crime was particularly heinous. In 1877... William's mother, having reached the age of 60, had decided to sign over the family farm to him. He was, however, the eldest son, still living at home, so this in itself was not surprising. Indeed, to those looking on from a distance, it had all taken place without any major incident. Catherine had left the family home with her two remaining children, then in their twenties, to allow William start his own family. This had seemed a sensible measure. However, the reality had been so very different. Tensions within the Sheehan family had arisen over money. William's mother did not and indeed could not give him the family farm for free. Catherine, his mother and two remaining siblings were after all going to leave so they required money to start up elsewhere. Given William did not have the necessary money his wife's dowry would be used to essentially buy out his mother. This made William's marriage an integral part of the process. His inheriting the family farm and his getting married were inextricably linked. Where love for the land stopped and love for his wife started was hard to determine given the circumstances. Indeed it's impossible to even know whether his inheriting the farm led to his marriage or vice versa. Either way, William's choice of wife was essential. If he wanted the family farm, love and affection would have to take a back seat. The key question was whether the family of his potential wife were rich enough to pay a dowry that would buy out William's mother. For example, there was no question William could marry someone who was from a laborer's family. Regardless of feelings and attraction she simply wouldn't have enough money to pay William to pay his mother for the farm. Around 1877 William had begun seeing Marianne Brown, the daughter of a neighbouring farmer whose dowry was going to be sizeable. In spite of the constraints on relationships it does seem as well that the couple were actually in love. However the terms of the marriage would be decided not by them but instead their parents. So in the summer of 1877, negotiations between Mary Ann's father, James Brown, and William's mother, Catherine, began. Brown offered £170 for his daughter's dowry. However, this was far short of the £300 Catherine Sheehan wanted. Now she was understandably determined to get this amount of money. She was, after all, not only concerned about herself in her later years, she also had two younger children, still in their 20s, Thomas and Hannah, who had to be looked after. James Brown, Mary Ann's father however was adamant he would not pay any more and the negotiations collapsed. Regardless of the fact William and Mary Ann were in love with each other the marriage was now off. While that should have been the end of the matter it does appear the couple continued to see each other though. Meanwhile William was surely concerned. His mother's insistence on a price of £300 for the farm jeopardised his inheritance and his marriage. Furthermore if this price was too high for James Brown he might not be able to find anyone willing to pay the amount of money his mother wanted and thereby he would never be able to buy her out. In the courtroom in Cork the prosecution argued this had led him to take drastic and decisive action when he set his mind to killing his family members. This was a strong motive for murder, particularly as we saw in the last episode there was a history of violence over land in the community of carrick Although they were able to present a strong motive in the case, the prosecution decided they would only try William for one murder, that of his brother Thomas. The evidence was strongest in this case. Not only did the skull bear the evidence of a blow to the head, but crucially the police had identified a witness, John Dewan, who claimed he had seen William murder his brother. Based on Dewan's evidence, the prosecution placed the time and date of the murder at around 11.30am on October 27th 1877. They argued it began with the arrival of a second man to the farm who would help William Sheehan in his deed. According to this version of events William and this second individual approached William's younger brother Thomas who was in a shed in the farmyard at this point. William attacked him with a griffon, a spade-like instrument used to cut turf striking him over the head. The two men then entered the house and William proceeded to strike his mother with the griffon. He then passed this makeshift weapon to the other man who killed his sister Hannah in a similar fashion. Now for Marianne Sheehan this was all devastating evidence. While her marriage was the motive it also involved others she knew. The prosecution argued that the second man at the Sheehan house on the day of the murder was none other than Marianne's own brother David. Perhaps even more disturbingly unbeknownst to her Marianne had visited William Sheehan on the day of the murder while the bodies were still on the farm. They had not been removed until around midnight and Marianne, along with her sister, had even played the concertina in the house, totally unaware of what the man she was hoping to marry at the time had done along with her brother. Later that night, after Marianne had left the house, William Sheehan and her brother, David Brown, were joined by a third man and the corpses were taken the short journey to the abandoned well and thrown in along with Lyme. To prove this sequence of events the prosecution were relying on the testimony of two key witnesses. The first was John Dwan, the labourer who worked on the Sheehan farm and had seen William murder his brother. However he was problematic given he was also implicated in the crime itself because he was that third man who arrived later in the night to help dispose of the bodies. However his evidence was oddly supported and simultaneously contradicted by a testimony of his son David. David Dwan was in Mountjoy jail in Dublin for theft at the time of the trial but back in 1877 he had heard the concertina music coming from the Sheehan household and rambled closer to see what was happening. When it came to an end and Marianne had left he had seen William Sheehan and David Brown aided by a third man he claimed he could not identify disposing of the bodies. This mystery third man David was refusing to identify was clearly his own father. While the Duans were not entirely trustworthy, their evidence, while at times contradictory, had a feeling of authenticity. The two were probably telling versions of the story that were very close to the truth. They hadn't coordinated their stories given David was in Mountjoy jail in the run-up to the trial and understandably he said he didn't recognise the third man because he didn't want to convict his own father. He had not realised, obviously, that his father had admitted to his full role in the events. The prosecution's case was also supported by other evidence. Mary Riley and Catherine Dwan, both of whom worked for the Sheens, testified they had seen the victims wearing clothes similar to the items found in the well on the day in question. Meanwhile, William Sheen's defence was ultimately pretty weak. It focused on undermining the key witnesses John Dwan and his son David. As we have seen, they were problematic. One was involved in the crime and the other was in prison at the time of the trial. However, the discrepancies between their testimonies were never enough to prove William Sheen's innocence. No matter which course of events were accepted, that of John Duan or that of his son David, William Sheehan was still guilty. The claim by William Sheen's legal team that it had been the father and son who had committed the murder made little sense. However, when the jury retired they could actually not reach a verdict, and the case for a second time collapsed, and William Sheen may have now been growing more hopeful. In later December the judge had no option but to impanel a new jury and hear all the evidence again. This was the third time the case had been before the courts. A few days later a new jury heard more or less the same evidence. They however were more decisive. Within 75 minutes of retiring they had reached a decision. Nearly 9 years after the murders William Sheehan was found guilty of killing his brother and by extension his mother and sister as well. The sentence in this situation was a formality in the late 19th century such a crime was always going to be punished one way. The judge as was customary placed a square of black material on his head and passed a death sentence. The trial also took a terrible toll on those involved. Mary Riley a witness who worked for the Sheens and had been in the house on the day in question tried to take her own life by suicide on the day William Sheehan was convicted. She would end up being committed to an asylum a few months later. For Marianne Sheehan, William's wife, the ordeal was far from over when his trial came to an end. While her husband had been sentenced to death, almost immediately she had to face into another trial, that of his co-conspirator and her brother David. The evidence was heard again in this trial which started on December 31st, 1885. While the prosecution case was similar, the evidence that had convicted William Sheehan was not as convincing against David Brown. His defence was able to point out that William Sheehan was already guilty and that John Dwan admitted to helping him and that they alone could have committed the murder and disposed of the bodies. Brown was found not guilty and released. A few weeks later William Sheehan mounted the gallows in Cork jail and was executed on January 20th 1886. While this may have been the end of the case, his trial raised major questions about the wider community in Carrigdanan. Manny had clearly known more than they admitted to and may not have been so surprised by the evidence that had emerged in his case. Prior to his execution William Sheehan had admitted his own guilt and claimed David Brown for example was innocent however in retrospect I think this is pretty dubious and questionable. William Sheehan could not have disposed of the bodies alone and both the dwans father and son, had testified to the presence of David Brown at the farm during the murders and when the bodies were dumped down the well. This leads us to ask what would David Brown's motive have been. Perhaps his family saw the advantage of consolidating even more land in Carrigdonan into their extended family. However the questions facing the Carrigdonan community was not just limited to the Brown family. Back in 1877 William Sheehan had explained away the disappearance of his mother, brother and sister by saying they had left to start a new business in Nina. However when pressed on the matter he had given suspicious and at times contradictory answers Many newspapers asked why, then, had no one in the small, tight knit community informed the authorities or probed the disappearance further. The person with the greatest case to answer was John Sheehan, William's brother, who lived a mile away. When his mother, brother, and sister suddenly disappeared without saying goodbye, he accepted this without any major investigation. He was surely aware there was tension in the family home over William's marriage. He later claimed he had searched for them in the neighbouring towns of Canturk and in Tipperary. However, given William Sheehan claimed they had only moved to Nina, one wonders why he didn't ever visit his siblings and mother to verify the story. While Nina was a considerable distance away, at some point in the seven years between their disappearance and discovery, John Sheehan surely could have taken the two days necessary to travel to Nina. Similarly, he had another sister, Mary Ann, who lived in Fermoy, who could have reached Nina relatively easily by train. Neither did so. There was certainly motive in the case of John Sheehan for turning a blind eye. While he had left the family home to run the family pub, this establishment had remained in his mother's name. After her disappearance, John transferred the pub into his own name. He also received a further £100 from Mary Ann's dowry on the day she married William. As I said at the beginning, the early 1880s were a strange time in Ireland. The country was rocked by several major murders, from the Mam Trashna case I mentioned at the beginning to the Phoenix Park murders that same summer. However, for some reason, despite its sensational nature, the Castletown Roach murders were forgotten. Why exactly they disappeared from public consciousness is not clear. Perhaps there were those who did not want to discuss the case precisely because the motives struck a nerve at the heart of Irish society. While William Sheehan, in his own admission, before his execution stated his motive was, Because my mother would not give me the consent to marry the girl, it cannot be simplified just to a simple love story gone wrong. This case exposed a lethal connection between land, status and marriage which were inseparable in 19th century Ireland. While the number of murders that resulted from it were comparatively few, the tensions within families around this were common and undoubtedly a case like the Castletown Roach murders only served to remind people of this. That's where I'm going to end today's show folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back next week with something different. Until then, sloan.